So welcome to Streamed and Screened, the podcast about movies and TV shows coming out from Lee Enterprises. We are here. Uh, this will be the, the last episode in this format. We're going to be changing some stuff up. So, so hang out uh, with us. I am Chris Lay. I am the podcast operations manager for Lee Enterprises, one of the hosts. We have Bruce Miller coming in from, from Sioux City. He's the editor of the Sioux City Journal and a longtime entertainment reporter. Hello, Bruce. Somebody who has seen it all. I mean, truly, I have seen all the movies and sometimes you go, really? I think I've seen this before, but what was the name of it? Speaking of names, we got Jared McNett. I've seen uh, none of the movies. I, I'm not familiar with the, the concept, but I'm, I'm happy to be here. Happy to be here. Jared McNett is a reporter with the Sioux City Journal. So we're going to jump in. And uh, what have you guys seen recently? Jared, I know you said you saw the new Idris Elba. Beast, which is not to be confused with a movie called Beast that also came out this year in uh, India. This is a, a different beast where uh, Idris Elba plays a, a doctor of uh, some kind or a surgeon, I guess. I don't think they ever really specified what kind of surgeon he is, really. But uh, he's able to use a 50 year old medical kit that's left in a Jeep. Yeah. And sew people up. Yeah. And uh, him and his daughters are on a vacation uh in uh in south africa to see a guy that they haven't seen in like he hasn't seen in <laughs> decades yeah his wife used to be friends with him she took some pictures and there are some warpy old pictures in his house of this one where you think were they doing something that maybe they shouldn't have been doing but yeah. i'm not sure mom has died and that's like a source of tension for the the daughters with with their dad they kind of blame the dad for how things were handled at the end of um his wife's life they like separated i guess shortly before she died and so that's this weird source of tension early on in the movie then pretty quickly they kind of tour this uh game reserve that they're uh in and uh things start to fall apart from there because they find out that uh there's an entire village that got wiped out by uh, a lion of uh, some kind and then basically you know the bulk of the movie is uh idris elba and uh his two daughters and then also uh, their friend, played by Charlotte Copley from uh, District 9, uh, just trying to, to stay alive and stave off this uh, bloodthirsty lion. Which makes so much sense because there is no cell service. So if you happen to get stopped somewhere, there's no way you can call for help. Nope. So you're going to have these two lame girls that don't know anything except the fact that they can whine about everything. And <laughs> they want to get back at dad. And we're in this Jeep together, which, by the way, does anybody ever look at the stuff before they go on one of these safaris? Because there were some things there that I think they could have fixed up a little bit before they get in it. And guess what? Spoiler alert. Encounter the beast. You know, dad is so dumb. Can I just tell you this? Dad is so dumb. He opens up the moon roof. Yeah. Like, would you really open the moon roof when the, the big old lion's coming at you? I think not. That was so he could get higher ground, you know? Right. Yeah, that's what we want to do. So he can come at you from the mountain. It looks like Pride Rock there, too, they've got, you know? So the line's kind of up there moseying around. And, of course, nobody, nobody stays inside the Jeep. They all have to leave at some point. Really? I would pee in the Jeep if I had to. I would not be hanging outside, you know, because at least you got the doors to keep you there from them. But there is one window that the beast breaks and you think, well, hell, how are we how are we shoring that thing up? 
You know, there are so many holes here that I don't know. Liam Neeson couldn't save them, save these guys if he tried. Some of those plot holes could maybe be forgiven for, for some people, but I'm I'm wondering if this was maybe less forgivable for you, Bruce. How did you feel about the CGI for the uh, for the lion? Well, I never got worried. Can I be yeah. honest? Yeah. I never worried that something was going to happen to anybody because, hell, you just erase them. You know, that's how you get rid of them. So I, it wasn't that. And I think we've seen films like this in the past where they have wrestled, you know, a real lion. And I don't, I don't encourage that. But I do think that the fear factor wasn't there because it's a little too sleek in terms of the way everything moved. And- and, and another way in which like things were a little bit too sleek is that this was rated R, which was actually surprising to me after I got done watching it, because like this is not a very it doesn't feel like a movie that earns that R rating very much. Like this is a movie about uh, a vicious lion and none of the attacks are feel particularly brutal. You don't really see a lot of after effects except for like, you know, someone's neck is all like mangled and stuff like that. I I was a little surprised they didn't make better use of some of that if you really want to play up the the fear factor of this. Well, look at Cujo. Yeah. Cujo is exactly what this wants to be. But then they want to come in with this message at the end, you know, and it's like, okay, I get what you're trying to do, but no. No. First of all, it sounds like like the alternate title for this that you're pitching, Bruce, is Dad is so dumb, which I'm all for. That feels like a like a great rebranding here. And the the other thing that I'm gonna throw out there, have either of you guys ever seen the nineteen eighty one film Roar? Oh, I'm familiar with this. Yes. Yeah. But I've not seen it. This is a movie uh starring Tippy Hedron and Melanie Griffith and this was, I mean, there's photos in Life magazine of Melanie Griffith and her family with lions. They were really big into just having he lions. He had a preserve. Yeah, yep. Tip was real big at, I think, messing with lions. The film, long, it was lost for a long time. Then Alma Drafthouse uh, resurrected it. But the filming of of the movie, it's all real <laughs> lions. And the, the tagline for it is, no animals were harmed in the making of this movie. 70 members of the cast and crew were. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Jan de Bont, who went on to be a director in, in his own right. He he shot Cujo. Speaking of Cujo. He was the cinematographer on Roar uh-huh. and had like half of his scalp ripped off. I mean, it's it is just an absolute mess. But that's um, that's out there. That seems like a, a slightly maybe not more enjoyable, <laughs> you know, something that at any point could have maybe turned into a snuff film. <laughs> yeah. And like, obviously like movies with animals don't need to be going that route anymore. And, and they shouldn't like it. It's, you know, animal abuse in a lot of cases, what happened with animals in, in older movies, but there's gotta be something better too than like the CGI in, in a movie like this, because yeah, Bruce is right. There isn't the same kind of tension or, or feeling of danger a lot of times. It wants to redeem the animal for what the animal did. And really, are they really thinking that far ahead? Like, you know, I really want my social media profile to be a little better than what we're trying to transpire here in the movie. The animal doesn't care. And so as a result, you have this kind of moral at the end of the story that you go, "Mm, yeah, okay, I get that. I still would have liked to have seen a good old swat from a paw. 
And truly, I talked to a cat over the weekend and I said, you know what? This is one you're not seeing. We're not going to turn this on. Don't get any big ideas. Don't be doing anything here. This is just like really stupid. So, and Idris, I, I was surprised that, you know, this kind of film sinks his chances of becoming the next James Bond. It really does. Because he has now put himself in a father category, which I think I would have held off on doing that for a while. And it also makes him seem like he's kind of settling, like Liam Neeson does. And those are things that I never would have done with Idris Elba. Never. So there must have been some money in this somewhere. And I, I think maybe some of his calculus, too, was, you know, certain ones of these, you know, type of movies, there's not a lot that necessarily goes into them, but they end up paying off in, in surprising ways sometimes. This one hasn't so far. It finished second at the box office behind the Dragon Ball Z movie. But you know, every every so often these kind of movies can hit some pay dirt, and I'm sure that's what the thinking was. Yeah, it's summer. We need one of those thrillers. We don't have Jaws. Let's go for this. Yep. So, Bruce, what have you seen? I dug into Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon, and I've seen a lot of it. So if you've only seen the first episode, I can't really talk more beyond that for you. But just know that it is a a more predictable story than Game of Thrones was. Game of Thrones, you could have somebody who seemed like the star and was dead the next episode. And they introduced a lot of characters that you had no clue who the hell they were, where they belonged to. This one kind of hews the line and you know who's with what family and who does what. And there's this evil brother that comes back, played by Matt Smith, Doctor Who. And is this 1957? Because it really does look like a 1957 film where, you know, there's this kind of sniveling brother that's there trying to gain the rightful throne that he has before him. It tries to tell a story about how women were, um, you know, held down or not allowed to ascend to the throne in, I don't, God knows what year this is, but it didn't change. So if it's a prequel, you know that it's not going to get anywhere with that that concept. So, I mean, there's a, it looks gorgeous. And the dragons, there are more dragons in this thing than you'd find, you know, at a dragon parking lot. In fact, I think it looks like a an airport of dragons. They're flying in all the time. And it's like scheduled flights. You think there's a uh, terminal that's going to be announcing what time the, the, the dragons are landing. Dragon parking lot? <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of and candles. How do, who, who is the official candle lighter in this thing? Watch and you'll see what I mean. They have a lot of candles in this and how they sit and light all those stupid things beyond me. But there are, are really kind of interesting characters. Um, I wish I, oh, I wish I could say more that I, I dare, but they do because they do age out. There are some young kids that are very good and they age out and they replace them with adult actors. But those kid kid people are really good at setting down a ground rule for this because it's it's pretty cool. And then the violence is, yes, it's violent. They are chopping heads off and doing all those kinds of things. But I think it's kind of limited. It's not as random as it seemed before. And the nudity is very um, contained as well. It's like, oh, we're going to have an orgy tonight. So come on over. So we know there's an orgy coming. And then, you know, you get the nudity. It's not this kind of, rando stuff that you see normally in a game of thrones yeah i mean it, it is interesting how how many things have changed within the industry since game of thrones i know i mean since game of thrones ended 
you know, there's been a lot of talk of the the intimacy coordinators and, you know, the the nudity and, you know, less violence, maybe, but the I don't want to say reined in, but much more controlled. There were a lot of complaints early on from some of the actors of, you know, not having robes and stuff on set. I mean, just a a lot of discomfort that no one is having to to go through now. Looking ahead, there's a new show on FXX that I know, Bruce, we've talked about before, Danny DeVito and his his daughter. You want to give us a little bit of a heads up on Little Demon? Okay, so she's the daughter of Satan, right? And Satan and the non-demon mother are kind of at odds about how to raise the child, okay? But she's a teenager, so she's like snarky and all that kind of stuff. The mom is like Sarah Connor from um, The Terminator. And she's voiced by Aubrey Plaza, right? Aubrey Plaza. And then um, Lucy DeVito, who is Danny DeVito's daughter, plays Satan's daughter. Danny DeVito voices Satan. And Danny DeVito's son, Jake, is also a producer on this show. So it's a DeVito family kind of project. And the thing that's interesting is that Satan isn't as bad as you think he is. And everybody else seems like, whoa. If you like the out there teen angst thing that was on Netflix, what's the name of that? Big Mouth? Was it Big Mouth? Yep. Um, this goes way beyond that. Now, the probably the version that you will get to see will have blurred areas and um, bleeps. I saw the uncensored version and it is dirty as hell. And um, there's toon nudity like crazy. I mean, a lot of toon nudity. They'll blur that out, I'm sure, for the for the mainstream. There'll be a way to get it. But when you see this other thing, and it's kind of simple little stories that are set to the theme of Satan and his family. You know, so you could take any kind of a, a random um, family comedy and then just kind of put that layer over the top of it. What do you think the, the longevity of a show like this is going to be? I don't think you look for a long run. I don't really, really don't. No? It's just the idea to shock and move the needle a little bit and then get the the idea out that maybe we could do this with other things. You know, South Park was a real trailblazer for a long time, and nobody tried to take South Park to another level. And I think that's what we're seeing with some of these more recent animated ventures is they're trying to go one better because there shouldn't be... You know, the thing about animation, sorry, I'm I'm jawing on like a professor here, but it's been that week, is that animation should do things that you can't do in live action. And there have been a lot of things that are just really a sitcom that's drawn. In terms of the content of this, I'm incredibly excited. I love a lot of the work that Danny DeVito's done. I've talked before about how It's Always Sunny is one of my favorite shows, and it seems like this will have similar sensibilities to that in some respects. But yeah, there aren't really a lot of animated shows, especially anymore, that seem to have new animation styles or are moving the ball forward in any way. Like we're kind of just stuck in variations of animation styles that have been around since maybe The Simpsons or even a little bit beyond that. And that's really kind of a shame. I really wish that there would be somebody that say, you know, I'm taking a risk on somebody who just does sketchy looking kind of animation. Mm -hmm. The Dr. Katz paradigm. <laughs> <laughs> squiggle vision well there are a lot of things you know bill plimpton if you remember him did a lot of fun kind of interesting things that never really got that venue for it it was just kind of cool things that you saw here and there but nobody adapted it for a film 
Disney, oddly enough, back in the 60s, tried a kind of a little sketchy version because they were able to use a, a Xerox machine to do it. But if you look at 101 Dalmatians and Sword in the Stone, are this kind of, it's not as kind of solid lines. I hope I'm making sense. Um, it's a, like a sketchy look. And that was simply because they could Xerox the cells and repeat the sketches a little a few times and they would be cheaper. But it was a different look that I think gave Disney a different feel than it had had for just decades. And then we came into the kind of the current stuff that's very Pixar-ish, where it's bubbles kind of that are trying to look like they're humans, but nothing that's really artistic. You mentioned that there's, you know, nudity and other bits that are probably tattoos look for the tattoos they say a lot of things they're like the signs in the background of a a simpsons show is there any violence i mean is it oh yes oh yes 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 (laughs) blood and all that kind of stuff yep it's a lot like what seth mcfarland does with his shows you just try to see how outrageous you can be not necessarily how creative you can be I don't know how you would show this to a kid. I really don't. Even if your family is very kind of free with the things that they talk about or they allow their children to see, I don't know that I would feel comfortable sitting next to a child when this stuff comes on if we hadn't really talked about it a lot. Well, as far as violence goes, that's a perfect transition into the other show that's coming out that that I know that you've seen, Bruce, and we can lead into our, our list, Biopics. Bruce, you've seen Mike the new biopic series on Hulu. I've seen part of it. I haven't seen all of it. Um, And it's a Mike Tyson kind of, um, I don't want to say an apology, but it tries to make you understand Mike Tyson a little better. Sure. Trevante Rhodes uh, plays a part. He doesn't really lean into doing the voice or kind of acting like he is. You know what I mean? It's a more respectful look at Mike Tyson than maybe I thought he would get. More than he maybe deserves, given the time period that they are exploring. And it's from Craig Gillespie, who did I, Tanya, also did the Pam and Tommy biopic series that was on recently to, I want to say mixed reviews. It, this feels like it's another red button in the same way that that, that show was, where it's reframing the, the dialogue around, you know, certain characters, but also adding some depth to it in in a way but you know maybe doing a disservice to some of the people who were wronged to a point i think people will go why do we need a mike tyson series why is this necessary at this point and i don't know that that question is answered and how many episodes did you watch uh three out of three? Six, oh there's i think six or there's eight quite a few really. yeah there's quite a few i um, mean he did have a tough t- childhood. He did have a lot of problems. Don King is in here. He's um, a big factor in his life. But, you know, does everybody get a TV movie or a miniseries at some point about their life? And this is another weird one to me. And this is a, a hobby horse of mine that I've talked about before is these like scripted versions of stories we've already seen done better in, in documentary form. And with Mike Tyson in the the late 2000s, there was an excellent documentary about him that, pardon the pun, didn't really pull a lot of punches that was just called Tyson that was directed by James Toback and did not shy away from any of his past whatsoever and was incredibly gripping. And I don't know why you need something else other than that when a document like that already exists in the world about your subject. It's probably because most of this stuff is free. 
You know, you can yeah. just find the information about them through just stories and whatnot, and you can craft something without having to pay rights for a book or whatever. With him, there's just still this to go from the the career that he had, as well as the crimes that he was convicted of committing, you know, sexual assault, battery. He was a, a very bad person in a quantifiable way, <laughs> it, you know, that is you can't argue against. But the arc of his career has been so interesting going from all of the the legal troubles and the you know convictions for violent crimes to having a, a detective cartoon on Adult Swim and co-starring in the Hangover movies. I mean, there's just a it's a weird arc that is certainly only in America to maybe grab another line that is associated with Mike Tyson and Don King only in America. I do like that the actor doesn't lean into the delivery because that's Mike Tyson is a personality whose voice has been imitated. It's a caricature of a caricature at this point. Well, it's funny because it's one of those voices that everyone knows, but you know, not a lot of people actually really do that good of a, a parody or, or take on. So in some ways it's best left to just not even bother with doing the voice. Maybe people know what the voice is. He's one that you really don't want to hear because he's far more intimidating when he doesn't open his mouth. Once he starts talking, you go, really? That's the <laughs> voice that goes with that body? You say that, but I will say uh, hearing someone say that they're going to eat your entire family is intimidating no matter what voice they say it in. <laughs> Point taken. Well, how do you guys feel about you know having somebody who's almost doing an impression in these kinds of roles. Is that a good thing? Or where do we cross the line where it becomes too much? I've talked about this before. I don't remember what episode. Uh, well, it was recently that I talked about it. I talked about the movie uh, Secret Honor with uh, Philip Baker Hall, where he plays Nixon. And he doesn't really try to do the voice at all. And he doesn't really look like Nixon that much. He goes more for the spirit of the man, which I think is always more important in these biopics. If it's a famous enough person, I know what their voice sounds like, so you don't have to do the voice for me. I can imagine that. I just want to see how well you convey the person in their life. I recently read like an older article about Norm MacDonald, and one of the points that it made was he never really tried to get any of his impressions right. Burt Reynolds and David Letterman and, you know, whatever else, they were much more the spirit of, of that person. And, you know, I mean, like his, his Burt Reynolds doesn't sound at all like Burt Reynolds, but there is just that effortless. The swagger. He had the swagger. Yeah. And, you know, he, he, if you can get that, you know, spiritual level of emulation, then you're, you know, 90% of the way there. Would you say, based on what you've seen of the show on Hulu, the actor gets there or is in the... He doesn't do a parody at all of him. No, no, no. But does he get to the, like, th that emulation? I mean, does he does he get the spirit of it in a way? Well, I don't know Mike Tyson, so I don't know if he really... Gra yeah, sorry, was that, a, was that a good sellout right there? That was a, that was a terrible answer. <laughs> but I have met Mike Tyson, and I... I think this series tries to give him more depth than I think he has. Does that make sense? Yes. So now that we've contemplated the Mike biopic, Jared, let's start with you. What are some of your, your favorite uh, biopics? Let's, let's go around, around the horn here. Starting with Jared. 
Well, I have to start right out of the gate with one I saw in, in 2010. And as soon as I saw it, I knew that it was going to be minted not only as one of the best biopics ever, but a movie that would end up telling, you know, the story of uh, my particular generation as well as any. And that's The Social Network. There's not a thing wrong with that entire movie. David Fincher's direction in, in The Social Network is perfect and as tense and gripping as any actual thriller that he made. The music uh, that, of course, Trent Reznor uh, worked on with Atticus Ross fits that movie as well as any score has fit a movie in a long long while and it's one of those scores you can listen to on its own and imagine all the scenes in your head when you're listening to the score and then appropriately enough you know jesse eisenberg doesn't necessarily look a lot like mark zuckerberg but i think even now when a lot of people think of mark zuckerberg what they think of is what jesse eisenberg captures as him in the social network and not necessarily Mark Zuckerberg. It's that and so clicking the yeah. tongue on the roof of the mouth and meetings in the, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I love that movie so much. And it, it, like I said, it's not only one of the best biopics. I think, I think it's just one of the best movies of this century. <laughs> yeah. Bruce, what do you got? Lincoln. I loved Lincoln. And I think what works, I mean, besides Daniel day Lewis, who is incredible is that we really don't know a lot of those details. I think now with these more current things like Bohemian Rhapsody, where you did have enough footage of Freddie Mercury to kind of make a call on that, or the Elton John Rocket Man, or I'll give you a real good example, because I used to watch Tammy Faye Baker all the time on the PTL Club. And I do not think that Jessica Chastain captured her. I don't think that she really had that spirit of what, Tammy Faye was all about. I think she was trying to do a voice and a lot of makeup and a big hairstyle. And that was it. And so I think those things where you have evidence to look at makes it more difficult. Lincoln, I never saw Lincoln, oddly enough. I never saw films of Lincoln. I never saw, you know, as best I've ever had is great moments with this Mr. Lincoln at Disneyland. That's as close as I've seen <laughs> a moving Lincoln. So I think it works better in that kind of venue where you don't, and the same way with now, because at the time of social network, we didn't really know them that well. They weren't personalities on TV or they weren't on talk shows or anything like that. So I think that helps. That's one of the best things about some of these. And then you find somebody like George Clooney who takes a risk with Edward R. Murrow or something like that. And you go, Oh, that's fascinating because, again, it's capturing an essence. It's not necessarily doing a parody of somebody. And I do think something like Jessica Chastain was a parody. And I think years from now, we'll look back and say, yeah, wasn't that good. Yep. So Lincoln is why I, my first pick of the, of the better ones. I like it. The pick that I'm going to throw out there is another just masterclass in, in the art of it uh, and the characterization coming from the actor stepping into someone's shoes and that's ed wood from 1994 tim burton i mean there's so many interesting decisions that were made about this movie from filming it all in black and white uh you know tim burton had worked with johnny depp a few times before this and it's, is it because of the comfort level that they had with each other or how how accurate does johnny depp get to portraying the very complex character of ed wood uh, and you know, it's, uh, it just, it just nails it on every possible level to me. It's the best Tim Burton movie, I think, 
um martin landau i believe this is the one that he did he win an oscar i know he was nominated yes yep. he won uh he won for this as as bella lugosi and uh yeah but i mean johnny depp being the the center of it obviously and again we didn't know ed wood and ed wood didn't look like johnny depp at all but you get okay now i understand why those movies were so stupid <laughs> and it makes sense because of the world it's like that um Oh, what is that crazy guy that always likes to make movies and thinks he made the best movie ever? Tommy Wiseau? Uh, yes. It's like that where you go, of course, that's that's why this works. This is this is what they are. Johnny Depp, he gets the the crazy enthusiasm that Ed Wood had for making films, uh, as well as the the sadness of, you know, just the fact that none of them were any good at all, but they were all these spectacular messes in in their way. So that's my well, shot. and look at I go back to Martin Landau as Bella Lugosi. That is just classic because you see what happens to an actor after their sell by date is is up, and how he still wanted to have that kind of world, and how they had to try and you know cheat everything so he looked like he was still there. Not to step on anybody's uh, upcoming picks, but it's the first biopic that Larry Karaszewski and Scott Alexander did. Those are the guys who went on to be nominated and win awards for scripts for People versus Larry Flint, Man on the Moon. Uh, they eventually reworked uh, with Tim Burton for Big Eyes. They also did the script for Dolomite is My Name on Netflix a couple of years ago. So, I mean, they also Problem Child, Problem Child 2, <laughs> that darn cat. But maybe the less said about those, the better. <laughs> Jared, what you got? Well, I'll drift into the music realm. I had to get at least one music biopic in since there's been so many music biopics over the years, although maybe a little bit less since uh, Walk Hard came out and kind of upended uh, music biopics for a while. My next pick is from 2007, and we don't have just one actor playing the main character in this. We have six actors, and that's uh, I'm Not There by uh, Todd Haynes, who later went on and did Carol, which some people might know better than I'm not there and basically it's a look at uh, different personas of Bob Dylan from over the years where Christian Bale, Kate Blanchett, Marcus Carl Franklin, Richard Gere, Heath Ledger and Ben Wishaw all play Bob Dylan or what's supposed to be Bob Dylan although it's never really said to be Bob Dylan uh, throughout different eras of his career so you have Marcus Carl Franklin playing him as like a young like rail hopping uh, purely folk indebted musician you have Heath Ledger in kind of like a cowboy era later on in life. And then you have Kate Blanchett in particular during Bob Dylan's like 65 and 66 era with the, the big wild hair when he was doing a lot of pills and uh, going electric and all that stuff. And <laughs> her performance in, in I'm Not There is definitely the one, no matter how much great work she does, is the one that's going to spring to mind first whenever I think about Kate Blanchett. She nails Bob Dylan so perfectly. And again, we talked about, you know, Tyson and how his voice is easy to imitate, but a lot of people don't do it very well. That's also true of Bob Dylan. And she nails the Bob Dylan voice so perfectly, but she also captures his essence in that era of this guy that was constantly innovating, but clearly fed up with everything. She, she captures that perfectly. And I love that stretch of the movie in particular. So I'm not there's my next one. She also did Catherine Hepburn in Aviator and won an Oscar for that. Yep. Um, and then she was supposed to do Lucy in the being the Ricardos and backed out of that. 
So she has a, a real track record of being somebody who can who can do these things. And I truly she is, you know, we all think Meryl Streep is the standard, right? But Kate Blanchett is right up there with her. She is just absolutely. As good. And I, I think she doesn't get enough credit. I think she seems too much like a journeyman in all of this. And I think she should be rewarded more often than not. She's somewhere between, and she, like when I say between, it's like she has one foot in each of these categories, but it's going from being a character actor to being an absolute like devastating lead. And she can do both those things. She hasn't really committed to either of them in, in a lot of ways. So- but uh, but yeah, that's a that's a fantastic pick. She's not precious about what she does. Mm-hmm. She's precious about the character. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating to see the kinds of things she does produce. When she was in Mrs. America, which was about Phyllis Schlafly, she wasn't at all like the real Phyllis Schlafly, but she was very much a character that you could buy. What do you got, Bruce? What's next on your list? Malcolm X, Denzel, the man. Denzel made me believe that he was Malcolm X. He should have gotten the Oscar. He should have gotten the Oscar for that one. You know, I wonder who was the one. It wasn't Tom Hanks, was it, that beat him? Spike Lee obviously has a a nice uh, long history of being snubbed at the. Yeah. Yeah. Who was it that won that? Uh, Pacino for Scent of a Woman. Oh, uh, yep. hoo ha. Yep. <laughs> Talk about dubious impressions. That was that was a payback right there. The the nominees for that year were him for Sin of a Woman, Robert Downey Jr. for Chaplin, uh, Clint Eastwood for Unforgiven, uh, Stephen Ray for The Crying Game, and Denzel for Malcolm X, and uh, Al Pacino won. Well, they snubbed him so many times that they finally felt they had to give him one. But for that... I'll shout out Chaplin, because Chaplin was one that was... Chaplin on... was good for him, too, but he was too early in his career. Chaplin is, is fantastic. If people have not seen that, give it a shot. One that I think people did not see from last year and should give it a chance, especially with, I know there's a new Netflix documentary series about Diana, the the Spencer film from 2021, starring Kristen Stewart, uh, directed by Pablo Lorraine. I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily a... I mean, we can get into semantics about what a biopic is. This is a, a much more tight time frame in Princess Diana's life. But Kristen Stewart is really fantastic in it and just gets so much of the the subtleties of just the, the emotional turmoil that was going on and the, you know, just just all the, you know, the the calm, you know, covering up this kind of roiling stew of emotions. Uh, underneath and that's probably a bunch of horrible images for <laughs> to describe this but yeah it was really good and it's on hulu so spencer is one that i'm going to throw out just as a much more current example we got time for i think one more round jared sure i will do another music one um that i think is probably underappreciated at this point and it came out in uh 2015 and again is a movie where two different people are playing an iconic musician and that's uh love and mercy the uh brian wilson movie where paul dano plays brian wilson of like the 60s and then john cusack plays brian wilson in the 80s when he's in a real uh decline in a real funk 
creatively as well as just personally and mentally. The Cusack stuff is solid. It's not quite as good as the the Dano stuff, where again, Dano doesn't necessarily try to do Brian Wilson's voice or or anything like that, but he perfectly inhabits where Brian Wilson was at, at that point in his life, which was one of the greatest minds in the history of popular music, realizing that he's losing it and wondering in the beginning of the movie, Paul Dano's wandering around his piano late at night and asking himself, what if I lose it and I never get it back? And that's a really powerful thing to kind of mine for a biopic of, of greatness slipping away from someone when they know that it's slipping away and they don't know what they can do to stop it. Bruce. I picked Jamie Foxx in Ray. I think that one really works. You know, it's such a dance that they have to do. I don't think that Bohemian Rhapsody works. Maybe that's just me in retrospect, because you look back at that and you think this was calculated. This wasn't an example of a good one that works. But you feel Ray in all of that. And you feel him. He I mean, he did the music. He did all of it. I think you really have to have the right person not just go casting for somebody, you know, like, well, let's find somebody to play this because this is a story that'll sell because he sold a lot of records, you know. I think that Ray really does what it should do if yeah. we're dealing with these kinds of films. Yeah, and I will uh, wrap us up with Behind the Candelabra from 2013. Uh, by Who are you talking Soderberg. to, Mumbles? Michael Douglas as Liberace, uh, who actually was uh, spent a lot of his childhood in Madison before moving to to Milwaukee. If I remember correctly, I know we've at the State Historical Society, we've got pictures of his parents in their their home on uh, Gorham Street, I believe. But anyway, Matt Damon, Rob Lowe is another just fantastic, oh. weird <laughs> stunt casting in this one. Uh, Dan Aykroyd as well. Scott Bakula. I mean, it, there's it's it's a bottomless well of incredible great over-the-top campy performances matt damon i think is priceless to this he went out of his comfort zone to play the role and it resonates it's good yeah behind the candelabra 2013 steven soderbergh notably retired from filmmaking after behind the candelabra oh, he's and... retired how many times <laughs> please any parting shots here i think look at i tanya i tanya is an interesting film it's very funny it isn't necessarily trying to capture reality, but it, it does take an approach to a character that maybe we would have taken more seriously if we were doing it another way. And I think they they found the humor in it. And I think Tanya has to find the value in it as well. Well, that is going to do it for, for this episode. We will be back soon. I'm not sure exactly what the, what the time frame is going to be like. Things are going to be a little different and we will uh, reframe and and reset and all that but uh i'm gonna let jared take it away and send us into the sunset with this format this iteration if you will of the the multiple iterations that we've had so far so uh take it away jared well instead of a long uh meandering one i am just going to say gotta always go against type gotta be surprising at all times uh, so I'm going to surprise this time and keep it short and just say, uh, if you're going to hang out at home, stream something good. Uh, and if you're going to go out to your local Cineplex, uh, screen something good. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jared. Thank you so much, Bruce. Uh, I know you got to hit the road. Uh, thank you for listening. You can find links to all the movies that we talked about in the show notes and uh, subscribe wherever you find all your, your shows. Uh, we will be back, like I said, soon. Uh, with, with some different different stuff and um yeah 
see something good, stream something good, and uh, just good, good things. Hearing someone say that they're going to eat your entire family is intimidating, no matter what voice they say it in.